you have your Bibles, please grab them, open them to Psalm 30. If you do not have a Bible, I know that there's at least one on the welcome table. Please take that as our gift to you. It is said that there are only three kinds of Christians in the world. Those who have suffered, those who are suffering, and those who will suffer. I'm sure if you think about it in your experience, that probably bears true. In January of 2009, I had the privilege of serving as a youth slash associate pastor at a small church in southern Indiana. We had had the privilege and joy of watching people welcome their first child into their home. We'd had the sorrows of standing beside saints at the graveside of a loved one. We'd seen souls come to Christ and be baptized. It had been a joyous time. Little did I know that that was about to abruptly change. The leadership of the church took a direction doctrinally that we could not agree with and stay on. And so after prayer and counsel, I went to a man who had been a mentor and kind of like a second father and had to explain to him why we couldn't stay. Everything seemed good at the moment. But within 24 hours, what had been a friendly, fatherly relationship turned bitter and cold. The friendships we had made in the church disappeared. And we felt crushed. As Matt so wisely taught us a few weeks ago, God has the right to enroll us in the school of his choosing and in his own timing. And unexpectedly, we were enrolled in the school of suffering. Felt as if we were adrift at sea in the midst of a hurricane, desperately searching for an anchor, for something that would secure us when it felt like everything was going wrong. We didn't just lose a position at a church, We lost our home and our church family. We felt adrift. I believe Psalm 30 captures very well what the response to suffering of a believer should be. I believe it instructs us not just about our hope, but about our response. And so we want to look at Psalm 30 this morning because there are truths here that will anchor your soul when you suffer. There are encouragements in this psalm that will also instruct you about how to behave and interact with others and with God when you're in a season of joy. So if you will, turn with me to Psalm 30. 
Let us read this psalm together. As Matt so often reminds us, this is the best part of the message. This is God's holy word. David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. They said there are three truths here in God's holy word that will anchor our souls Before we look at them, I would like to take a moment and ask the Lord to bless his word and our hearing of it. Father, we are so grateful that your word is instructive. Lord, we are even more grateful that it is comforting. Lord, you are the one who inspired this psalm. And so we come to it asking for you to open it to our eyes and our hearts that we might see wondrous things. Lord, help us to see the hope that we have in Christ through Psalm 30. For we ask it in your name. Amen. There are three truths that anchor our souls out of Psalm 30, and the first one is that God's rescue is certain. God's rescue is certain. David begins the psalm with a declaration. He says, I will extol you, O Lord. Extol is not a word we normally use, but it simply means to exalt, to worship. But it is more than that in this psalm because it is not just saying, hey, I will worship you, but David is making a commitment. He is making a vow before the Lord that I will extol you. David is making a commitment that everyone who would come within the sound of his voice would hear 
the praise of his God. And he makes that very clear by saying, I will extol you, O Lord. David is reminding us that there is one who is worthy of worship and only one. But he is also reminding us that that one who is worthy of worship has a particular name. In our English Bibles, we see the word Lord often in the Psalms. And you probably see that it is in all caps. And that signifies a word that the Jews did not want to utter out loud for fear of blaspheming. That is the word Yahweh, right? That is the covenant-keeping name of God. That is the name that when Moses asked him at the burning bush, who are you? Who will I say sent me? God simply responds, I am. This is the name that David cries out to and says, I will extol you, O Lord, my covenant-keeping God. And to instruct us, he says, It's not just that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a covenant-keeping God with me. It says, for you have drawn me up. David says, I will extol you, O Lord, because you have drawn me up. The idea here is of a well so deep, there's no escape without help. And David says, you have drawn me up. His rescue was from God himself. And David says also, and you've not let your foes rejoice over me. One of the incredible things that God does when he rescues his people is that his rescue is complete. To the utter silence of our enemies. No one gets the last laugh over God's people. Because his rescue is certain. David continues in verse 2 and says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. As if he wasn't clear enough in verse 1, David wants wants us to know. He's instructing us here very specifically that he is talking to someone he has a personal relationship with. He says, O Lord, my God. We have access to the God of the universe. Tim Keller is known to say that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that access to the king of kings. The relationship we have with God is personal. And we must remember that because when suffering comes and we cry out, we cry out to a God who knows us and who hears us. And how do we know that? Because David says, when I cried out for help, says in verse Two, he says, and you have healed me. 
This is not a quiet, collected request. This is not a simple word of saying, I cried out. It's also not about volume. It is about desperation. David is crying out for help because there is no other rescue. The idea here is of a mountain climber stuck on the side of a mountain with a broken rope. Someone doesn't come to his aid. There is no hope. But David says, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. God's rescue is certain. Friends, don't miss this. It says, you have healed me. This is an assurance to us. God's rescue will come. David continues in verse 3 and says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. And there are a ton of scholars who debate whether David is talking about physical healing here or metaphorical healing. Is it literal healing from illness or is this healing as a rescue from one of the many circumstances that David found himself in his life? And I see no reason in this psalm where it cannot be both. Because God does heal and he does rescue. But David paints this particular rescue with the word shield. It's again not a word we are probably very familiar with. It just has the idea of worse than death of being forsaken. It's worse than the grave. It's being abandoned. David says, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. Not just delivered him from his affliction, but David says, you have restored me to life. If David was writing in modern days, he might have said, You gave me CPR. You breathed into my mouth. You pumped my chest and you brought me back from a flat line. From places of despair so deep that we think there's no way out. From a place where we feel forsaken, God restores us to life. And David says that it's not just restoration to life, but restoration from among those who go down to the pit. The pit here is just simply the idea of the grave. We all die. But what David is reminding us here is that death for the Christian is not forsakenness. Death for the Christian is just the entry to eternal joy. The Apostle Paul would have said, what? For me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. David reminds us that even in our suffering, there is rescue, and it is certain. And let me point you, brothers and sisters, to the cross. Because if you doubt God's rescue, let me remind you that at the cross, God's love is evidenced in such a way that for you, there is more than enough evidence to know that he will rescue. At the cross, Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my Christian friend, Christ cried out that way so that you would never be forsaken. God's rescue of you is certain. The psalm seems to take a weird twist here. Seems to be a disconnect. Because David goes and talks about rescue and healing. And in verse 4 he says, Sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints. But David is not disconnecting two things here. He is actually helping us connect our response to our rescue. He says, sing praise to the Lord. This is to use your voice much in the same way you cried out for help, but to cry out in worship. To use your voice like an instrument of thanksgiving because your rescue is certain. And he gives us instruction as to who should cry out this way. He says, sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints. Do not miss this word saints here. The saints are God's covenant mercy receiving people. The saints are those upon whom he has placed his own name. The saints are the ones he claims by right of redemption whom he has sealed with his own spirit and whom he has purchased with the blood of his son, Jesus. My Christian friend, when he says saints, he means you. And he says sing. And he doesn't say sing. He says sing loud. Lift your voice at the same level of cry that you had in desperation, but this time in worship. If you find yourself among the redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sing loud. My friends, I want to take a moment here to address those of you who might be here and you don't find yourself among the saints. You are not a Christian. God is rich in mercy. He is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. And your greatest need is not for deliverance from circumstance. Your greatest need is deliverance from the wrath of God. 
The good news is his rescue of you at the cross is certain. And you can walk out of this room today as a Christian, as a saint. Would you turn to Christ this morning? David continues in verse 4 and says, Sing praise to the Lord, O you as saints, and give thanks to his holy name. I am so glad this phrase is included here because the Holy Spirit in his kindness and inspiring David to write this did not leave us without instruction as to what this looks like. David says, sing praise and give thanks to his holy name. Our worship is our thanks. And our thanks is our worship. But we don't just thank him for the rescue. We thank him because of his character. We worship him because of his holiness. His holiness is not just that otherness which God possesses. He is different than us in every way. But it is also his moral purity. That means that he cannot do anything that is not good. More specifically, he will not do anything that is not good. So when you find yourself crying out for rescue, it's not because you are outside of his goodness. David instructs us to give thanks to his holy name, which reminds us that even in the midst of our suffering and trials, he is good. Friends, Matt just reminded us this morning what worship looks like in heaven right now. And that is what worship should look like on earth. The language of heaven is worship. Its vocabulary is redemption, love, mercy, and grace. Holiness permeates its tone. Faithfulness is its refrain. Thankfulness to the one whose eternal rescue is certain is its theme. So let us join with the multitudes in heaven now and sing loud to a holy God. Charles Spurgeon would say this phrase and it fits so well here, says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. When David is saying, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, he is not simply saying that in a vacuum because his goodness has placed us in places of suffering where we would cry out, that we might experience his goodness and rescue. Your circumstance is not apart from his goodness. And rather than bemoan the circumstance, cling to the rock. Give thanks that the circumstance he has put you in, in his goodness, bring you to him. Saints, 
His rescue is certain. Sing loud. His rescue is certain. Give thanks. And not only is his rescue certain, David shows us in verse 5 that God's favor is permanent. And that is our second point this morning. That God's favor is permanent. Look at verse 5 with me. and say, It says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God's anger in verse 5, David says, is for a moment. It's a blink. It's a flash. But his favor is for a lifetime. His favor far outlasts our suffering. Even if it were our lot to suffer the entirety of our life on earth, it is but a blink in light of eternity. But David doesn't say that his favor is only for eternity. He says his favor is for our lifetime. For those who believe in Christ, that lifetime has no end. Neither does his blessing and his favor. His favor is as long as eternity. His anger is a flesh. I want to make a quick distinction here that we should never miss. Sometimes God's anger is felt. But we must distinguish between punishment and discipline. The punishment for our sin was Christ's at the cross. There is no wrath that remains on us. There is no punishment left for his saints. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that does not mean that we don't experience discipline. Discipline, we need to understand very carefully here. It's different than punishment. Punishment is exacting payment for wrong done. Discipline is taking something in distress and making it right. It's the idea of a tree that's fallen down and the gardener comes and stands it back up and sets a stake next to it and ties it so that it can stand strong and grow. It's the idea of someone who has fallen and is helped back up. God's anger here is not punishment. It will never be punishment for his saints. But it may be discipline because he loves us enough to remove things from our lives that take the place of his deserved worship. But it's for a moment. It's for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. 
Sometimes our struggle is that we take those moments of suffering and drag them out. Like a blacksmith on an anvil taking a hot piece of metal and hammering it hard and long to make it bigger than it was originally. We stretch it out to where it covers more than it should. But his anger is for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Puritan Thomas Mankton would say it this way. He would say, a man's greatest care should be for that place where he dwells the longest. Therefore, eternity should be his scope. We will spend eternity under his favor. And my friends, you are under his favor now. Focus on his favor. Think of his favor. It will outlast your suffering because his favor is permanent. David continues in verse 5 and says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This weeping is, again, voices raised in grief and suffering and repentance. David says, it may tarry for the night. That word tarry, if you were to look at the Hebrew word, and I am not a Hebrew scholar, but what I am told here is that if you see that word in a place where Hebrew is spoken or written, what you would see is the word hotel. It's not permanent. It is temporary. Weeping may tarry for the night. Our sorrow, our grief, our suffering may bring with it what feels like the long night of the soul and darkness. But it is temporary. Joy comes with the morning. There will be a moment. And in his kindness, God tells us what that moment looks like every day. There is a moment when day breaks and night is pushed aside. What the psalmist is saying here, what David wants you to know, what I want you to understand, what I want you to anchor your soul to this morning, brothers and sisters, is your suffering will end and joy will come. The gloom of the night is dispelled by the joy of day. You've probably heard of this story in the past. If you haven't, it may bring light to something I do know you know. Horatio Spafford was a businessman in Chicago, a friend of D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist. And D.L. Moody went to England to do a campaign of evangelism. And Spafford was to join him. But caught up by business, he sent his wife and four daughters on the Vildahav, a ship that would leave 
the U.S. and head to Wales. On November 22, 1873, the Ville de Havre was struck by another ship and sank in less than 12 minutes. All four of Spafford's daughters were lost. Tanetta, Maggie, Annie, and Bessie would go under the water. Spafford's wife alone would be saved of his family. And of 226 passengers, only 12 would be rescued. Upon hearing this news via telegram from his wife, Spafford dropped everything and grabbed the next ship he could. One account says that every evening he would pace the deck of his ship. He would just pace back and forth, just pace, crying out, going, why? When they neared the place where the Ville de Havre sunk, the captain of Spafford's ships just kindly informed them, we are nearing the place. For the first time in the voyage, Spafford returned to his cabin that evening and sat down and penned words that we still sing today. He wrote, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a little-known fourth verse to this hymn. It says, For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If dark hours about me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death, as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. Brothers and sisters, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And joy is not a change of circumstance. Joy is the presence of the Comforter. Joy is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Joy is certain because God's favor on us is permanent. And whether we experience relief from our circumstance or not, I want to remind you that you do have a comforter who will speak joy even in the midst of suffering. If you find yourself this morning as a weary saint in your suffering, David reminds us his favor is permanent. David continues in verse 6 and says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. 
I was dismayed. Perhaps you find yourself here this morning going, man, Pete, this doesn't seem to apply to me this morning because I'm in a season where God is blessing me. Sing. Sing his praises. Sing loud. Your voice should be the loudest. But do not forget where that favor comes from. David just wants to remind us that favor is from the same one who rescues. And were he to hide his face, we would be dismayed. So his favor is permanent, and we must sing and give thanks. David continues in verse 8 says, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Everywhere else in this psalm, you see the word Lord. It is the word Yahweh, as we talked about earlier. But the second time you see it in verse 8, and to the Lord I plead for mercy, it is the word Adonai. David cries out, says, to you, O Lord, I cry, my covenant-keeping God, The word Adonai means master. Means the one who is sovereign over all things. And to the one who is sovereign over all things, David says, I plead for mercy. If you find yourself in suffering, you have an anchor in your covenant keeping God. And you have the mercy of the one who as sovereign can change everything. David cries out and says, my covenant-keeping God, who can change everything, have mercy. What profit is there in my death, David says in verse 9, if I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David is not bargaining with God here. He's not saying, hey, let me live a little longer. I'll praise you. You got a deal. What David is simply stating is the fact that a saint who understands that his rescue is certain and his favor is permanent will worship. So give me time to do so. And he says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is our helper. In Christ, he has purchased for us total healing. Our sin-sick souls have the balm of Gilead applied to them. Our wretched lives ruined by sin have been redeemed. And our hell-bound race has had its course corrected. And its correction leads to eternal joy. My friends, God's rescue is certain 
His favor is permanent. And to give us a little more oomph to this, look at 2 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen where Paul tells us, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, your rescue is certain. His favor is permanent. And his favor is forever. David finishes this psalm, verses 11 and 12, and he's taking four phrases here very quickly in rapid succession to wrap up this psalm. But that shouldn't mean we shouldn't take a moment to pause on them. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory might sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Saints, this morning, hear these words. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Joy comes in the morning and your morning will not be forever. It will be turned to dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth, he says. For those of us not familiar with the practice, the Middle East, a grief, sorrow at death, there would be sackcloth, repentance. It would be itchy. It would be scratchy. It would be annoying. And every movement would serve to remind us of grief. And David says, you have loosed that. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. The word clothe carries the picture of something fastened securely, not just loosely draped on. If I can say it this way, it's belts and suspenders. Right? This is God putting his gladness in you in such a way that it will never leave. David again tells us why. That my glory might sing your praise and not be silent. David is not being redundant. He is being emphatic. It's not that he couldn't figure out what else to say. It's that he wants us not to miss it. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Brothers and sisters, because his rescue is certain, because his favor is permanent, please do not be silent. For those of you who are awaiting rescue and who think it may not come, 
It is certain. David finishes the psalm saying this, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. There will be a day when we will worship with absolute abandon and the cares of this life will be gone. But we dare not wait until that day. So my question, saints, is will you, with David, say, O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that your rescue is certain, that your favor is so permanent, that for eternity we will enjoy all the goodness and that our sorrows will be but a memory. And until then, Lord, help us. Help us to say with David, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen.